First of all, I want to take the uh, opportunity to introduce someone new to Grace. Uh, Bob and Sarah Ridley have just joined us. Bob is a new member of our staff. He'll be the pastor of congregational care, and Sarah will be his supervisor uh, because that's the way it works for all of us. We started looking for a replacement for this role when Mason resigned at the uh, beginning of the year. We interviewed dozens of outstanding candidates, and the Lord convinced us that Bob is the right guy. Uh, Bob is an orthopedic surgeon not licensed in Texas, so all of you who have injuries, you can't come and get free care at the church. But he left, he spent time, they spent time in missions in Africa. They've uh, been in the military. They've done multiple things, a lot of life experience they're bringing to our team, and we're thrilled to have them. And you'll get to know Bob in the coming days, but we wanted to make sure you saw his face, and you'll get to hear him soon. So, Bob and Sarah, thank you for being here. Thank you. You look good. <laughs> All right, you're gone. There you go. <laughs> First of all, I want to mention how proud I am of some of our members. Um, Dr. Uh, Kevin Gilliland, who teaches a, uh, an adult Bible class in the first hour, has been interviewed a couple of times on Channel 8, done a wonderful job of speaking about anxiety and how people respond to this. I think he's been a great uh, example uh, as a believer who speaks to the public about how we should respond. But, but many you don't know about. One of the things I'm hearing repeatedly is how many members of our church are reaching out to other people, especially the, some of the older folks. I'm not going to say elderly because officially I'm there. Some of the older folks have had people do grocery shopping for them, check in on them. Our staff has done a great job of starting to call through our whole list. And I think more than half of our congregation has been called and spoken to. In other words, words, it's a time when we're seeing our members really respond. But for those who uh, the, might fall through the cracks, I'm encouraged also that our staff is continuing and will continue to call and reach out through email, do whatever we can. And if you have a need, please call the church office. Uh, the office is closed, but our phone system, which we just purchased, allows us to receive all calls from remote. My voice messages go to my mobile phone. In other words, we are still in tune with you and want to hear. Another thing I'm thrilled to tell you is that this week we'll start rolling out meetings on Zoom. So I will st I plan on starting teaching Bible studies again with Zoom. People can call in on their computers and we'll have live Bible studies together. Another of the adult Bible classes will be doing the same thing. So so we're going to reach out to you and seek to expand the work of the church in all the ways we can, as well as continue to serve in the community. One of the quotations that circulated a great deal since the virus came around is one by Martin Luther. Martin Luther was alive during one of the great uh, plagues of the past, the bubonic plague, and he has a wonderful quote which I referred to last week. Let me read it to you. I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. And then I shall fumigate and help purify the air, administer medicine, and I will take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me home, he will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid to place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See, 
this is such a God-fearing faith because it's neither brash nor foolhardy, and it does not tempt God. One of our members is organizing uh, crafts and, and play for the children in their neighborhood so that even though they're locked in their houses with their parents, they have things to do. We find, we're reaching out and finding many ways to serve the community around us, and that's what we should be uh, doing. And I'm proud of our congregation and the things they are doing. You know, the, this is a fascinating time because pressure brings out in us who we really are. It, it, it reveals a great deal about us. Uh, I, I debated whether we should do another sermon related to the, the uh, pandemic, but came to the conclusion we're going to pick up back again in 1 Corinthians. And so today we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Corinthian church was not in a stress like we're in. In fact, they were in perhaps one of the greatest tests that can occur to humans, and that is they were in a time of great prosperity. They were commercially a very successful community. There was incredible competition among them. They were under one of the great stresses there is, and that is the stress of things going well. But it still caused them to show who they really were. We talked a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 1 about how they had begun to choose sides, choose groups, choose leaders that they would elevate. So Paul says, some of you say I'm of Paul, some of you say I am of Apollos, and some of Cephas, and some of the really spiritual ones say of Christ. And the Apostle Paul is making the point that we only have one head of the church, and that is Jesus. And he says, did was Paul crucified for you? No, only Christ was. But their choosing of sides, when these people that they're aligning themselves with all agrees, reflects that there's something else going on, and that was there was pride in the church. In their affluence, in their prosperity, and their success, there had entered into the congregation incredible pride so that they wanted to boast about the one that they followed. We see that sometimes in our society today. Even we Christians can align ourselves with different great preachers, different great theologians in a, in a way to look down at other Christians, which obviously denies the very truth of our gospel, which says that we are all needy before God. At, at the end of chapter 1, he transitions to the choosing of sides and moves to one of the issues that underlies it, and that is, what is the nature of true wisdom? What is the nature of true wisdom? So if you look back at chapter 1, verse 17, he said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than our human strength. So Paul alludes to the fact that underlying this issue, Fundamental to this issue where pride has allowed them to compare themselves favorably to others is a misunderstanding of what true wisdom is. What, what is really right? What is really true? And how should we honestly respond to our circumstances? And certainly in that sense, it's more than applicable to our situation today. Um, 
If you look at verses 1 through 5 of 2 Corinthians, first, he reminds them of the power, 1 Corinthians, that he reminds them of the power of his message. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, literally authoritative words or wisdom. As I proclaimed to you the testimony or literally the mystery about God, for I resolved... I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is an interesting paragraph for the Apostle Paul because in some ways it's inconsistent with what we know of him. The Apostle Paul was brilliantly educated for his time, both in the Jewish world as well as in the Greek circles. We know from his writings that he understood the issues of rhetoric and and instruction that was taught in the prevailing wisdom of the day, and he uses it brilliantly. One of the commentaries I read said that the more they understand of the rhetoric of that day, the more they see how much Paul mastered it. And yet he says that when he came to the Corinthian church, he resolved not, not, to know anything except for Jesus and him crucified. I I would submit to you this doesn't mean that Paul uh, intentionally uh, did not use his ability or his strength. What Paul is saying, though, is that the essence of our message is not that we're smarter. The essence of our message is is not that we're wiser. Uh, The essence of our message is the simplicity of Jesus dying on the cross. The reality is that the gospel is the core of what we have to say. And and when we get caught up in other issues to the point where the gospel is relegated to a less significant role, then we are in danger of forgetting what we're here for. Paul, in fact, says, I came with weakness and great fear and trembling. I don't know about you, but that's not consistent with the picture I have of Paul. Paul was normally someone that I assumed. I mean, he took on Peter in in the book of Galatians. He took on crowds who were after him to kill him. He was not a man that I think of with fear and trembling. But I think what he's saying is he came with incredible humility because of the importance of the message which he was speaking and his sense of inadequacy to communicate that message. So his message and his preaching weren't with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. What is our power as believers? What what is the power of the church? Even in the marketplace of ideas in which we live, in the world of discussion that's constantly going on around us, to what do we depend for our power. Now, does this mean that we can't use solid debate and solid information and other tools in order to advance our message? I don't believe it does. But, but what Paul is making clear is that we're in the business of spiritual change. And as such, it is spiritual power alone that will ultimately accomplish what we're called to do. 
a demonstration of the Spirit's power because I didn't want your faith to rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Every once in a while, I hear the story of an, another uh, Christian who's left the faith. I, I, I hear about another seminary grad who's gotten away and become discouraged and, and renounced his faith. And it always causes you to wonder what in the world happened with that. Uh, was it, was it that somebody argued with him with an argument he had never heard? Did, did she encounter a problem that she had never experienced? What is it that causes someone to walk away from their claim to following Jesus? I think one of the causes is when our faith is based on human wisdom. Uh, we, we came officially to Christ because at some point we, we heard someone argue and it, it made so much sense and so we aligned ourselves with that argument. But there wasn't the, the submission to the Spirit. There wasn't that embracing of the fact that Jesus alone can save us. There was this sense in which somehow we thought, well, if I align myself with the party of Christians, then that'll take care of it. But this isn't about the party of Christians. This is about embracing Jesus as our Savior, which by definition is, is something that requires great humility because it's an acknowledgement that we can't take care of ourselves. It has to do with setting our side of pride but also reminding ourselves just how deep our need is. Our need spiritually is so significant that it is only God's power that can address it. And those of us who are Christians who have followed Christ for many years can very easily, especially in difficult times, fall back on our own strength in order to, to win in the circumstances of life. We can, we can decide that we'll just muscle up and get it done. We'll intellectually beat these issues. We will somehow accomplish something through our own will that will overcome the circumstances around us. And the Apostle Paul, who was incredibly bright and incredibly accomplished and incredibly gifted, says, when it comes to me, it's all in fear and trembling because I lean into the Spirit, not my wisdom. I hope in the Lord's power, not my own power. And, and quite candidly, these times that are difficult like this are great opportunities to ask ourselves on what are we depending as we walk through this life. Are we, are we depending on the power of the Spirit? Or are we somehow falling back and depending on our own wisdom and our own strength? See, difficult times cause anxiety because we realize how inadequate we are in ourselves, but there are also incredible opportunities for those of us who follow Jesus to remind ourselves that we're never alone. Uh, last week I talked about First Peter 4, 5, and 6, and my wonderful phrase there, uh, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And I spoke about my father's own hands and how much I remember the shape of them and how important they were because they represented his sacrifice of love to others. But I left out one other point, and that is I remember as a young child 
that I never was afraid when I held my father's hand. That when he would reach out his hand and I would grab hold of whatever part of it I could handle, whether it was one finger or the whole hand, at that moment, fear left. Anxiety went away because, because I knew he was there for me. I was no longer dependent on my own abilities, which as a child I understood to be limited. The great problem with becoming adults is we buy our own press and start thinking we can do it ourselves. But as a child, I understood how desperately I needed someone greater than I. And when I held my father's hand, I felt a peace and a confidence. The reality is that our message is one that says that we don't have to be adequate in and of ourselves. Our wisdom is not enough. Our strength is not enough. And, and we deny that message when we start depending on ourselves, depending on government, depending on our employment, depending on anything but Him for our ultimate strength and comfort. That is the essence of the message of the gospel, that, that God loves you and me individually personally and he cares for us completely and and when we set aside our own ego or insecurity and just grab hold of his hand he not only saves us for eternity but he protects us today now one one of the facts of this passage that is really interesting is how often it's been used for bad theology how often people have, have taken it say, as we go through this, you'll see that he, he relies on a spiritual wisdom, not an earthly wisdom. And, and cults have used this to say, I, I know this seems this way, but go on and drink the Kool-Aid. It's, it's spiritual wisdom. Um, can I give a word of caution about that? Read the book of Proverbs. There, there is a practical wisdom that is still Still spiritual. Spiritual wisdom does not call on us to do things that go against the way God established the world around us. There is a dependence on that wisdom that's revealed in the wisdom literature of Scripture. But it is a wisdom that understands there is always someone greater. There is always a power more significant. And that is the Holy Spirit, the triune God. So, Verses 1 through 5, he reminds us of that gospel message which is so powerful. In verses 6 through 9, he continues on with the reality of that spiritual wisdom. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of the age or of rulers of this age or coming to the, who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it is, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, these things God prepared for those who love him. Uh, Paul affirms to his readers that the message he has spoken is one that's consistent with the spiritual wisdom that came from God. It's not the wisdom of the world around us. It's not the wisdom that confuses personal power and success with significance. 
It's not the wisdom that puts my own interests above everyone else's, no matter how much harm I might do to them. It's, it's not the wisdom that denies our need for someone greater than us. It is instead this wisdom that's consistent with the gospel and that comes from God himself. I love it that he says it's, it's not the wisdom of this age. And he has a perfect proof to show that the leaders of the world didn't understand the wisdom of God. Because he said, if the leaders of the world had understood the wisdom of God, they wouldn't crucified the Lord. Fundamentally, if we ever question whether the world around us understands God's truth, the one illustration that we know is that the world rejected the Savior. The, that human wisdom uh, saw him as the threat. And it's ironic that today, if you ask most people, even those who deny Jesus being the Son of God, they'll say that J Jesus was a great teacher and a wise man and someone who taught wonderful things. And then that begs the question, then why did we reject him? Why did the Jews and the Romans, the leaders of the day, why were they so ready to cast him aside. And I'd submit to you that Paul is saying because they had a worldview that was completely inconsistent with the worldview of the gospel. He was a threat to their power, to their wealth, to their success, to their order. He, they knew, was a threat to the life that they loved because he came with a message that is counter to the world in which we live. It's a message that we and of ourselves aren't adequate, but God is absolutely adequate. We and of ourselves need help, and God is always offering that help. We and of, in and of ourselves are not good enough, but God is not only good enough, but gave His Son to make us whole with Him. In fact, then the Apostle Paul uh, takes what's apparently a summary of multiple passages at least two verses from Isaiah chapter 64 and 65 and says, uh, what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, these are the things God has prepared for those who love him. Not, not only is our worldview in the world inconsistent as it relates to how we live today, our worldview of the, uh, in the world is inconsistent with what God promises to bless us with in the future. He says, none of us can comprehend what God has prepared for those who love him. See, we get caught up and worried about today and the things that we can see and the things that we can grab hold of because we don't realize how big what God offers to us spiritually really is. The peace and the blessing that he gives to those who follow him in this life and the eternal peace that comes with being united with him. It seems to have kind of gotten, uh, frankly, no longer cool to talk about heaven. We, we are so worried about today that we've uh, diminished the role of our eternal hope in Christian language, you, you hear it less. It's about how to have a happy now, life now. But, but 
Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 will make the point that if there is not the eternal, if there's not the resurrection from the dead, then it's not worth it. He's hinting to that theme here because he says the, the greatest thing that God offers is, is not just the peace he brings today, but the eternal reality that the resurrection implies. And none of us can comprehend just how great that is. Finally, in verses 10 through 16, he gives again the source of the spiritual wisdom that is the basis of this great message. Verse 10, and these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even deep things of God. For no one knows the person's thought except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. In other words, we can't understand the thoughts of God on our own because the only way we get into the mind of God is through His Spirit. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul is drawing a line in the philosophical sand, if you will, by reminding us that the world will never understand the wisdom of the gospel. In fact, it's just plain foolish. He's hinted of it in chapter 1. He, he reminds us of it here that, that what we hold to seems foolish to the word, world around us. Because the only way it makes sense is when the Spirit speaks to our hearts. The only way that living the way God calls us to live makes sense is in the context of what God has said to us in His Word. Are we sitting at the feet of the Spirit or of the world? Is our primary source of wisdom the Internet or the Scripture? Is our thinking shaped by the instruction of Christ or the instruction of the media? If someone were to listen to our words, do they hear the voice of Christ or the voice of the world around us? And I know all of us, as if we're followers of Christ, we would readily answer, well, of course, it's, it's dependence on the Spirit. But can I make one other point, and that is spiritual wisdom fails when we have goals that are counter to God. If, if, if what we're giving our life to is inconsistent with that wisdom, if, if not only the way we live, but what we live for is inconsistent with the truth of the gospel and, and the gift of the Spirit, if, 
if we reflect the world and what our hope is, that we have been validated the wisdom of the Spirit and fallen into the wisdom of the world. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the difference between worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom? What, what makes the difference between living our lives as defined by the gospel rather than living our lives as defined by the world around us? What does this crisis show about us? Do, do we care about others or do we only care for ourselves? If, if we hoard things, and it's horribly tempting to make a joke about toilet paper, but I don't even know what to say about that. Do we hoard things reflecting a lack of concern by others in the way we seek to care for ourselves? Do, do, do we reflect a concern for those who are more, more vulnerable or do we only care about protecting ourselves? Do, do we have a worldview whose hope is set on the promises of God rather than the promises of what this world has to offer? As always, C.S. Lewis has something to say. C.S. Lewis, as you know, was uh, around at the time of World War II. He fought in the trenches of World War I, something that shaped him, had an impact and in coming to faith. But he wrote extensively and, and spoke on radio broadcasts during World War II. And he was asked about nuclear threat. With the development of the atomic bomb, obviously the Western world went into great fear about what does this mean? What does this imply for human reality? The fact that one bomb can destroy so many lives. Let me read you what he said. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. This threat is not that new. Believe me, my dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. What is he saying? You know, we're all going to die. And it's not going to be pleasant for some of us. That was true before the atomic bomb. It sounds harsh, but it's truth. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics. But we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to our world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, then let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, 
listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. And he says presciently, and a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. What is the wisdom of Scripture? What is the wisdom of the gospel? Is that God has it. It's not about us. We are ultimately powerless. God is in control. And, and he looked from his throne in heaven and saw our powerlessness, our brokenness. And he responded by giving his son, which is a declaration for all the universe to see of just how much he loves us and how much he cares for us. And that fact is enough to give us a worldview, a wisdom that allows us to navigate the difficulties of life, to live in the context of what life gives us with a sense of confidence and a sense of hope. Spiritual wisdom doesn't mean that we don't wash our hands. Spiritual wisdom doesn't mean that we don't separate ourselves from other people. It doesn't even mean that we keep meeting as a church. We've, we've sought to respond to the truth in the world around us in the best ways that we can, and we thank God for the opportunity to use this kind of broadcast to reach our church family. Uh, spiritual wisdom doesn't deny the obvious truth around us, but spiritual wisdom sees something greater, and that is the reality of God's presence in everything there is the reality of God's love and the reality of His promise. And that there is no situation in all of life, no problem in all of life, no circumstance in all of life that's too big for Him. Many of them are too big for us, but not for Him. The Apostle Paul would say to us that, that worldly wisdom causes people to respond in all kinds of ways that are sometimes selfish, sometimes futile, sometimes noble. But spiritual wisdom begins and ends with the gospel, that there is a sovereign God who loves people enough to give His Son, and therefore upon whom we can depend no matter what our circumstances May, may you and I have that kind of wisdom to navigate these times which are unlike any I've ever seen, but do so in a way that not only shows that God cares for us and is competent, but demonstrates His love and His glory to our world around us. As a church, we will continue to seek to find ways to serve each other and to serve our community in these circumstances. But I'd call on you in your prayers, in your personal Bible study, in your time alone, seek the wisdom of Christ by the power of the Spirit so that, so that we are made stronger no matter what these circumstances bring. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we are weak. And, and the weakness of God, as Paul says, is 
stronger than the strength of man. And we confess that we are needy and that when we rely only on ourselves, we have made a large mistake. And Father, we confess that it's easy for us to get so caught up in what's going on around us that we stop thinking in a way that's consistent with your truth and instead think in a way that's shaped by the foolishness of the world. So we get proud. We get convinced of our own adequacy. Lord, I pray that you would use these circumstances, if it be your will, to humble us. Not to crush us, but to point us back to you. To depend on you. To be confident in your love. And to yearn for your presence. Not only in our daily lives, but in the life to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.